This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best, big news inspires the crypto world. The FTC paves the way for Grayscale and others to potentially launch a Bitcoin ETF. Huge win for Grayscale, huge win for our investors, and really the crypto and investment community is as a whole. UBS CEO says watch for thousands of job cuts as the Swiss lender absorbs Credit Suisse. What is the best for Switzerland? What is the best for clients? What is the best for employees? And there is no room for nostalgic considerations. And former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson vows to be back on the debate stage as the race for the Republican nomination for president heats up. I've surprised everybody every step of the way. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Well, as we've been talking about, the crypto industry has scored a huge win as that federal appeals court blocked a ruling by the SEC that had blocked Grayscale's plans for a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund. And this brings the industry a major step closer to being able to tap billions of dollars from everyday investors with the potential Bitcoin ETF. Of course, the SEC could also fight this decision. And Michael Sonnenschein, CEO of Grayscale, does say the fight's not over yet. And we caught up with him Wednesday after headlines on the Bloomberg Terminal Tuesday about that key federal court development. And here's Sonnenschein with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic, Denny Berger, and Alex Steele. Let's listen in. Today is day one of a 45-day period during which the SEC has the ability to request a rehearing. Ultimately, at the end of that 45-day process, you could expect a final mandate from the court with operational next steps. Now, of course, in the interim, our attorneys are going to be working proactively with the SEC to try and make this conversion as expeditious as possible. Um, But we really do need to ensure during this period we're adhering to the federal rules of the appellate court. Do you need to refile for an ETF? And if you do need to refile or amend, are there certain things that you would add, such as a surveillance sharing agreement. Do you worry that the ones that already have one have a competitive advantage to your filing? Well, so the operational next steps on anything that Grayscale will or won't have to do will be contained in that final mandate that comes out of the court. But one of the interesting things that we actually got from the court in yesterday's decision was that the court agreed with us that the arguments we've been putting forward all along throughout this process are such that the SEC already has the tools it needs to approve spot Bitcoin products like GBTC that there is sufficient surveillance between the CME, where Bitcoin futures trade, um, and national securities exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, where we intend to list GBTC as an ETF. So there really shouldn't be any further grounds like the SEC has been relying on to continue denying these types of products from coming to market. Michael, you're very optimistic. Danny here, by the way, in London. Great to speak with you. It makes complete sense that you're optimistic in a, in a, and in a good mood. But do you have a nagging voice at the back of your head that something might go wrong? What are you most afraid of that could kind of undo some of the progress that we saw in yesterday's decision? 
Well, I think we're really at a pivotal moment here for crypto. Certainly, a lot of investors have been voicing to us increased optimism, both around the recent Ripple victory, now obviously the Grayscale victory in court yesterday, as well as what they're seeing taking place in Washington, right? You now have draft legislation that's passing through Congress, and we're really optimistic that there will be greater regulatory clarity for investors through some of these types of actions. And I think if we take an even larger step back and look at the broader landscape, crypto has been one of the best performing assets year to date. And coming out of this most recent crypto winter, what we're hearing and what we're experiencing is that investors know that crypto as an asset class is most certainly here to stay. Can we go back to refiling for a second? Sure. So do you have to refile? We will have to see upon the final operational procedures that come through that final mandate that the court will issue. So you don't know, but you may. We don't know what the final opinion will say until we reach the end of that period, correct? Um, is there, I've been reading stuff from yesterday too that you know you may have won this battle but then lose the war and that there's a bunch of other competitors now. So now yes. you're not gonna be the only horse in town. Yes, so this is a topic we've talked about before, ladies. It's really a, a world in which there are multiple spot products is a world that Grayscale has long been ready for. There are multiple Bitcoin futures products. We believe that there will be a world in which there are multiple spot Bitcoin products. That being said, we want investors to have choice. And some of the things that we do think investors will look to when they are making those allocation decisions are the size of the fund, the liquidity of the fund, the track record of the fund, right? Let's not forget that GBTC is the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It's owned by millions and millions of investors. It has three plus percent of the outstanding Bitcoin supply and really now has almost a 10-year track record of operational success, right? Whereas a lot of the other products coming to market are really making use of GBTC's operations, disclosures, reporting, and GBTC is really paving the way to broaden out that market. So the other My strangeness here is the discount that uh, the GBTC is currently trading at. You had gone from 24 yesterday to 15 below net asset value back to 20. Can you answer to this market volatility here and the uncertainty that investors are grappling with as you head towards this process? Well, there's a couple of things in that dynamic. So number one, there certainly was increased trading volume yesterday in GBTC. A lot of excitement and enthusiasm based on the victory that GBTC shared holders had in the court yesterday. Now, as we eventually approach an ETF, you'd expect that eventually there will be an arbitrage mechanism through the ETF that will allow for any premiums or discounts to be eliminated. Um, that's a really, really important function of why ETFs serve in the capacity that they do. And it's really the core of what we've been fighting for throughout this entire lawsuit, right, is to ensure that the optimal investment structure is there for investors and we do eliminate any premiums or discounts. Michael, have you heard anything from the SEC over the past 24 hours? Any updated communications or questions? We have not heard anything from the SEC, um, only just from public reporting. Um, we've seen certainly that the SEC um, is reviewing the decision, much the same way my team and my legal team is reviewing the decision as well. And again, it is our intention to continue to have a proactive and constructive dialogue with the SEC during this 45-day period. Um, I guess the other question becomes, why here versus if, if crypto and Bitcoin is going to become a hotter topic overseas, right? Why launch here? Why not go somewhere else and launch? Well, this is the center of the financial markets and capital formation. Yeah, but clearly the U.S. government does not like crypto. Well, <laughs> you know, from my standpoint, Grayscale now coming up on 10 years. 
of operational history, you know, we purposely decided to set up shop in the U.S., make use of existing rules and regulations, and it's our intention to continue to do so, right? Enabling investors to access this innovative asset class, but in a way that feels traditional, familiar, and again, within those regulatory um, you know, constraints that they're often used to. We were talking about the uh, potential to either refile or amend. We were talking about the SEC's frustrations with crypto and fight against a lot of the parts of the crypto industry. Are you specifically addressing some of the SEC's concerns when it comes to their concerns around market manipulation, investor protection around retail investors? And uh, are there any changes that need to be made before you head into a new relationship with them? Well, I think we always have and will continue to serve in a capacity that's educational with the SEC. This is an asset class that continues to evolve very rapidly, and we feel a tremendous responsibility to be serving in that capacity. Specifically, though, Shanali, to manipulation, fraud, things of that nature, if you look closely at yesterday's opinion that the court issued, the court agreed with us that the SEC did not come up with substantive reasoning as to how to explain the difference between futures and spot and the fact that these mechanisms that we believe are already in place to detect things like fraud and manipulation in the Bitcoin market are already present. You had some hope that, that Congress would take action when it comes to regulation. Perhaps there's more appetite for them to approve and to welcome such products. You said you haven't heard from the SEC. Have you heard from Congress? What sort of noise are you hearing around Capitol Hill? So we are certainly very engaged um, with both sides of the aisle in D.C. There is no question now that crypto has become actually a nonpartisan issue, right? We're realizing that so many of our legislators recognize that their underlying constituents are involved in crypto, are increasingly going to be involved in crypto, and they want to ensure that they're approaching legislation in an appropriate way that protects their underlying constituents. Um, I am optimistic that this upcoming, you know, Congress can actually move some legislation forward. And again, I do think it's really a pivotal time for, for us and other stalwarts within the crypto space to be educating our politicians about crypto so that they actually are looking at legislation through a very you know, knowledgeable lens. I'm going to push you just one more time on the fees here, Michael. Oh, of course you are, Shanali. <laughs> well, the reason being is this is a matter of competitiveness when we come to this market. It is also going to determine how much retail investors are going to really pay for a product that has been more expensive than other ETFs in the past. Give us a roadmap here on how you're thinking about it because you've had years to think about it. We have, and when GBTC converts to an ETF, we will lower the fee. Um, you said that it's been more expensive than other ETFs. Notably, GBTC is not an ETF today, right? And so when GBTC converts to an ETF and it becomes in that product structure and it perhaps is in an environment with other competing products, there are going to be other factors for us to consider there as well. And that was Michael Sonnenschein, CEO of Grayscale, with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic, Danny Berger, and Alex Steele. Speaking the day after Grayscale got word Tuesday, it scored a major legal victory in federal court in its bid to launch the first U.S. ETF that would invest directly in Bitcoin. And coming up, former Arkansas governor and GOP presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson vows to be back on the debate stage again. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
I'm Denise Pellegrini, and it's really hard to believe, isn't it, that we are less than a year away now from the July 2024 Republican National Convention. And Asa Hutchinson, he's former governor of Arkansas and a current candidate for the Republican nomination for president, hoping to be a contender when next summer rolls around. He appeared on the debate stage last month. He's hoping to do so again going forward in California. And Hutchison also tells Sound On at our Joe Matthew, if his path leads from Arkansas to the White House and he becomes president, he will be handling a lot of things very differently than President Biden is, starting with the way President Biden handled the tragic fires in Maui. Let's listen in. First of all, your comments to the nation immediately afterwards would be very important, sympathetic, and and uh, showing that you're on top of it and not a uh, more casual, no comment type. And then secondly, you've got to be there very quickly. Uh, You know, and I don't want to be overly critical, but it just illustrates that whether you're the president or whether you're a governor during times of crisis, uh, you have to be there. uh, You have to help uh, comfort uh, and guide the recovery. Governors and mayors have just a different reality than, for instance, members of Congress, the House or the Senate, because you have to deal with reality and you have to deal with everyone. Do you wish you had more of an opportunity to tell that story? You're not the only governor on the stage here that that makes you different from those who have never been an executive. Oh, absolutely. I, I think governors are in a uh, are set apart They're uh, They know how to lead. They're held accountable. And I would like to have told more of what we've done in Arkansas, particularly in contrast to Governor DeSantis, who talked about uh, how they managed through the pandemic. I was waiting yeah. for the opportunity to talk about how we did it in Arkansas. And I think there will be another occasion at the uh, Reagan Library because I think those questions will come up again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my record of cutting taxes, creating a surplus, creating jobs uh, in Arkansas, uh, and, and balancing a budget. They're very relevant to be President of the United States. Uh, the way I guided through the pandemic and making sure our businesses had an opportunity to survive, not sheltering in place, uh, as many of the other states did, and keeping our schools open after those first couple months for in-classroom instructions. Uh, these are things that set my leadership apart. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to talk about those more. Do you expect to be on the debate stage at the oh, Reagan Library? Oh, absolutely. I've surprised everybody every step of the way. Nobody thought I'd be on the first debate stage, and we made it, uh-huh. uh, thanks to a lot of support from uh, voters out there that wanted to make sure I was there. And now a lot of people don't think I'll be on the second debate stage. I will be there. I will be there because we have a growing level of support. My message continues to be important. Well, it's interesting when we talk about the message, what you just said about being governor. There are questions about whether that's resonating with Republicans today in a way that it might have 10 or 20 years ago, that it's about red meat. It's about conspiracies. It's about Trump. You saw Vivek Ramaswamy come flying off the stage because of some of the more outlandish things he said. This is someone with no electoral experience. Do you worry that you're talking to a different crowd now than you were earlier in your career? Well, if you want pure entertainment, there's others besides me well, to there support. Are. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I suppose it started to a certain extent with uh, Donald Trump that uh, came uh, out of the entertainment world straight into the presidency of the United States. And now uh, the impression is that anybody can do that. Hmm. Uh, and 
you know, you even think about Ronald Reagan. He was an actor, but he was also uh, a governor first. Right. And then he became president. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, was governor, then became president. And so I, I think they still have a high regard for governors. I think that does make a difference, but it's more than that. It's more than being a governor. They want to see somebody that will fight in Washington, mm-hmm. somebody that uh, will be aggressive in, in uh, making sure that uh, we – tackle the administrative state, reduce regulatory burdens. And so that's on me to make sure I showcase my record, but also what I will do. There's another governor on that stage uh, who is known for going after Donald Trump, and that's Chris Christie. Is there room for both of you? Well, uh, I think so. Whenever you look at eight candidates on that stage, and only two of us had a non-Trump message, and I probably was even more clear when I... Uh, said I would not support somebody who uh, was convicted of a felony. At one point, you were the only candidate to not raise a hand. Chris Christie had a little confusion there. I think we know what he meant. But what does that tell us about that stage when only two of you would respond that way? Well, it tells you there's a fear factor as to offending Donald Trump. And if you're running against him, don't worry about it. Get over it. Uh, that's what we're doing. Isn't that we're, why you're running? Against exactly. Uh, and so uh, I'm surprised by that. But, you know, in reference to uh, Chris Christie, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways we're in the same lane. We all bring something different uh, and we bring it in different ways. So it's what kind of leader do you want uh, for our country? And uh, I'll present my case. We'll see what the voters, how they respond to it. We're spending time with former governor Asa Hutchinson, of course, Republican presidential candidate. I'd like to ask you about the 14th Amendment, because you've been talking about this, and I'm compelled by this idea uh, that the president, in your former president in your eyes, may be unfit for office because of the legal challenges that he's facing now four times indicted. If it comes to it, will you sue invoking the 14th Amendment to get him out of this race? No, I don't expect that to happen. There will be plenty of others that will raise that issue. So I don't need to, and I would not want to. But let let me describe it this way. It's a constitutional requirement for eligibility. For example, right now you have to be 35 to run for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. A secretary of state will not put somebody on the ballot who's 34 or 33. They make that determination. This is a constitutional requirement. They have to review as well and make a determination whether they violate the 14th Amendment. I suspect that there will be one or more secretaries of states that will make a determination that he is ineligible uh, because of the 14th Amendment, which says if you're a federal official, you can't can't commit acts of insurrection uh, or you're disqualified from uh, being on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And if a secretary of state says no, uh, he is eligible, then you can expect somebody to sue saying they were wrong uh, in making that determination. They're ineligible and take it to court. And so the bottom line is this would be the Democrats' dream scenario that we nominate somebody at the convention that will later be determined by the courts to be ineligible to hold office. Wow. Are you talking to your fellow candidates about this? Might there be... I don't want to say class action, but a cooperation in, in moving this issue forward? I don't think it's necessary. Uh, this is going to play out with the various secretary of states and different citizens that want to uh, raise this issue in court. You know, I made my case 
I think it's important for the public, Republican voters, to understand this risk, and it should be a factor in determining who's going to be our nominee. That's why I raised in the debate, I was the only one that talked about this. Yeah. You know, you talk about uh, he can't win in November, he can't bring in independence, but also you've got this issue of actually being disqualified under the 14th Amendment as another risk factor. Lastly, when we talk about winning over independence, is the issue the economy? that will get that done, or is it something else? Well, the economy is the number one issue. It yeah. is, and, and independents, uh, voters trust Republicans to handle the economy more so than Democrats. And so that's why it's going to be a key political issue. But also, when you ask about bringing in independents, it's yeah. more than just the economy. It's also who's going to listen, hmm. who's going to care, Who's going to take us in a rational way into the future and lead our country? And so those are some intangible qualities that independents will look at as well. And they don't want a strident uh, extremist that leads or somebody who's going to create chaos every day. Hmm. They want someone who will stand for their values and represent them, but also set an example for young people and kind of leadership we need in our country. And that was Asa Hutchinson former governor of Arkansas and a current candidate for the Republican nomination for president with our Joe Matthew on the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. And coming up, we'll take a deep dive into the future of UBS as the Swiss lender reports record profits. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and it's really hard to believe, isn't it, that we are less than a year away now from the July 2024 Republican National Convention. And Asa Hutchinson, he's former governor of Arkansas and a current candidate for the Republican nomination for president, hoping to be a contender when next summer rolls around. He appeared on the debate stage last month. He's hoping to do so again going forward in California. And Hutchison also tells Sound On at our Joe Matthew, if his path leads from Arkansas to the White House and he becomes president, he will be handling a lot of things very differently than President Biden is, starting with the way President Biden handled the tragic fires in Maui. Let's listen in. First of all, your, your comments uh, to the nation immediately afterwards would be uh, very important, sympathetic, and and uh, showing that you're on top of it and not a uh, more casual, no comment type. And then secondly, you've got to be there very quickly. Uh, you know, and I don't want to be overly critical, but it just illustrates that whether you're the president or whether you're a governor during times of crisis, uh, you have to be there. Uh, you have to help uh, comfort uh, and guide the recovery. Governors and mayors have just a different reality than, for instance, members of Congress, the House or the Senate, because you have to deal with reality and you have to deal with everyone. Do you wish you had more of an opportunity to tell that story? You're not the only governor on the stage here that that makes you different from those who have never been an executive. Oh, absolutely. I, I think governors are in a, a are set apart. They're, uh, they know how to lead. They're held accountable. And I would like to have told more of what we've done in Arkansas, particularly in contrast to Governor DeSantis, who talked about uh, how they managed through the pandemic. I was waiting yeah. for the opportunity to talk about how we did it in Arkansas. And I think there will be another occasion at the uh, Reagan Library because I think those questions will come up again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my record of cutting taxes, creating a surplus, creating jobs uh, in Arkansas, 
uh, and, and balancing a budget. They're very relevant to be President of the United States. Uh, the way I guided through the pandemic and making sure our businesses had an opportunity to survive, not sheltering in place, uh, as many of the other states did, and keeping our schools open after those first couple months for in-classroom instructions. Uh, these are things that set my leadership apart. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to talk about those more. Do you expect to be on the debate stage at the oh, Reagan Library? Oh, absolutely. I've surprised everybody every step of the way. Nobody thought I'd be on the first debate stage, and we made it, uh -huh. uh, thanks to a lot of support from uh, voters out there that wanted to make sure I was there. And now a lot of people don't think I'll be on the second debate stage. I will be there. I will be there because we have a growing level of support. My message continues to be important. Well, it's interesting when we talk about the message, what you just said about being governor. There are questions about whether that's resonating with Republicans today in a way that it might have 10 or 20 years ago, that it's about red meat, it's about conspiracies, it's about Trump. You saw Vivek Ramaswamy come flying off the stage because of some of the more outlandish things he said. This is someone with no electoral experience. Do you worry that you're talking to a different crowd now than you were earlier in your career? Well, if you want pure entertainment, there's others besides me well, to there support. Are. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I, I suppose it started to a certain extent with uh, Donald Trump that uh, came uh, out of the entertainment world uh, straight into the presidency of the United States. And now uh, the impression is that anybody can do that. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, you even think about Ronald Reagan, he was an actor, but he was also uh, a governor first. Right. And then he became president. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, was governor, then became president. And so I, I think they still have a high regard for governors. I think that does make a difference, but it's more than that. It's more than being a governor. They want to see somebody that will fight in Washington, mm -hmm. somebody that uh, will be aggressive in, in uh, making sure that uh, we tackle the administrative state, reduce regulatory burdens. And so that's on me to make sure I showcase my record, but also what I will do. There's another governor on that stage uh, who is known for going after Donald Trump, and that's Chris Christie. Is there room for both of you? Well, uh, I think so. I, whenever you look at eight candidates on that stage, and only two of us had a non-Trump message, and yes. I probably was even more clear when I... Uh, said I would not support somebody who uh, was convicted of a felony. At one point, you were the only candidate to not raise a hand. Chris Christie had a little confusion there. I think we know what he meant. But what does that tell us about that stage when only two of you would respond that way? Well, it tells you there's a fear factor as to offending Donald Trump. And yeah. if you're running against him, don't worry about it. Get over <laughs> it. Uh, that's what we're doing. Isn't that we're, why you're running? Against? Exactly. Uh, and so uh, I'm surprised by that. But, you know, in reference to uh, Chris Christie, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways we're in the same lane. We all bring something different uh, and we bring it in different ways. So it's what kind of leader do you want uh, for our country? And uh, I'll present my case. We'll see what the voters, how they respond to it. We're spending time with former governor Asa Hutchinson, of course, Republican presidential candidate. I'd like to ask you about the 14th Amendment, because you've been talking about this, and I'm compelled by this idea uh, that the president and your former president in your eyes may be unfit for office because of the legal challenges that he's facing now four times indicted. If it comes to it, will you sue invoking the 14th Amendment to get him out of this race? No, I don't expect that to happen. There will be plenty of others that will raise that issue. Yep. So I don't need to, and I 
would not want to. But let, let me describe it this way. It's a constitutional requirement for eligibility. For example, right now you have to be 35 to run for president of the United States. Mm-hmm. A secretary of state will not put somebody on the ballot who's 34 or 33. They make that determination. Right. This is a constitutional requirement. They have to review as well and make a determination whether they violate the 14th Amendment. I suspect that there will be one or more secretaries of states that will make a determination that he is ineligible uh, because of the 14th Amendment, which says if you're a federal official, you can't, can't commit acts of insurrection uh, or you're disqualified from uh, being on the ballot. Mm-hmm. And if a secretary of state says no, uh, he is eligible, then you can expect somebody to sue saying they were wrong uh, in making that determination. They're ineligible and take it to court. And so the bottom line is this would be the Democrats' dream scenario that we nominate somebody at the convention that will later be determined by the courts to be ineligible to hold office. Wow. Are you talking to your fellow candidates about this? Might there be, I don't want to say class action, but a cooperation in in moving this issue forward? I don't think it's necessary. Uh, This is going to play out with the various secretary of states and different citizens that want to uh, raise this issue in court. You know, I made my case. I think it's important for the public, the Republican voters, to understand this risk, and it should be a factor in determining who's going to be our nominee. That's why I raised in the debate, I was the only one that talked about this. Yeah. You know, you talk about uh, he can't win in November, he can't bring in independence, but also you've got this issue of actually being disqualified under the 14th Amendment as another risk factor. Lastly, when we talk about winning over independence, is the issue the economy that will get that done, or is it something else? Well, the economy is the number one issue. It yeah. is, and, and independence, uh, voters trust Republicans to handle the economy more so than Democrats. And so that's why it's going to be a key political issue. But also, when you ask about bringing in independence, it's yeah. more than just the economy. It's also who's going to listen, hmm. who's going to care. Who's going to take us in a rational way into the future and lead our country? And so those are some intangible qualities that independents will look at as well. And they don't want a strident uh, extremist that leads or somebody who's going to create chaos every day. Hmm. They want someone who will stand for their values and represent them, but also set an example for young people and kind of leadership we need in our country. And that was Asa Hutchinson former governor of Arkansas and a current candidate for the Republican nomination for president with our Joe Matthew on the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. And coming up, we'll take a deep dive into the future of UBS as the Swiss lender reports record profits. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and the earnings surprises, will they just continue to come in? Although we have had some disappointments as well, but one of the upside surprises coming this past week from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, HPE boosting its annual profit outlook. That's as businesses upgrade technology despite concerns about the economy. Of course, AI is also part of this positive story. And here's CEO Antonio Neri with our Katie Greifeld and Romaine Bostic about what's happening at HPE. Check this out. We are very pleased with the results of our third quarter, which was, again, very solid. We saw continued uh, revenue growth and margin expansion once again. 
And that's driven by the intentional uh, shift in our strategy to focus on high growth, high gross margin areas. And you talked about that intelligent edge, which had a stellar performance with 53% year-over-year revenue growth and an operating margin improvement of more than 1,300 basis points. And when you think about the composition of the company today, uh, the intelligent edge now represents 20% of the total company revenue. Two mm-hmm. years ago, it was 10%, and now almost 50% of the company profit. So overall, an astonishing set of results. And that allows us to continue to invest in the business as we think about the next wave of growth, which obviously is going to be AI and hybrid cloud. I am curious as to how that works out down the road, Antonio. When you were elevated to CEO about five years or so ago, you made a very clear point to investors that you wanted to diversify the company. At least on paper, it appears that you have already done that. But now the question becomes, has the pendulum swung too far? Are you going to be too dependent on that intelligent uh, business, intelligent cloud business, relative to some of the other business units. Well, thank you for referring to that because when I became CEO, I said that the enterprise of the future will be edge-centric, cloud-enabled, and data-driven. The edge was the next frontier, and we invested quite significant in that business, and we have more than doubled that business in five years. And that's the result of all the hard work. In 2019, I said, we're gonna deliver everything we do in the company as a service. And you see HP Green Lake. HP Green Lake now represents a significant part of our deferred revenue, which is all rateable and including the profit. And in this quarter, we crossed the $12 billion total cumulative uh, contract value, and we grew that $1.5 billion quarter over quarter. And that resulted in a 48% AR increase. And so those are two examples are great testament of when we focus and we execute, we deliver value for shareholders. Now, the third part of this is AI. But I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased about the edge because now we create a new baseline. That baseline is being fueled also with new capabilities, expansion of TAM into the areas of security, software-defined wider network, and core 5G and private 5G, who has yet to play into our numbers. So as we think about 24 and beyond, you will see the growth from those areas fueling the go momentum we have in the edge. I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the compute and the storage units, because if you yep. look at sales in the compute unit, uh, that includes data centers and servers, of course, it declined 13%. That's slightly worse than what analysts had been estimating. What does that say about the appetite for corporate spend in this environment? When do you expect that cycle to maybe stabilize a bit? Sure, Katie. I mean, we have that sixth magnificent quarter, I call it, you know, revenue growth and significant operating margins, way above the industry average. And now we're seeing the normalization of what I call the ongoing compute cyclicality that happens every few years. And so customers obviously pull in a lot of the orders last year because of the supply chain challenges. Those have now returned to normalized levels. And so now we see that digestion. But as I think about 24, uh, we see a couple of three things coming in our favor. Number one is that we have a generational shift to new products. Uh, that's what we call Gen 11. Number two, we're going to see in 24 increase in commodity cost. That's natural evolution of the industry as demand improves. And number three, you're going to see more content towards AI, particularly what I call AI inference solutions, which is going to drive an increase in the percentage of the mix. And that was Antonio Neri, CEO of Hewlett Packard Enterprise with Bloomberg's Romain Bostic and Katie Greifeld. And that is it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and this 
is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.